I want to first say that it's really uh, it's been fantastic to be here. Seasonally speaking, to begin with, um, I'm looking, my phone tells me Chicago's weather. And, and I keep trying to reboot it to Santa Monica, but it tells me Chicago. And, you know, I look at it and it's four degrees, and then it's two, and it's one, then it's zero. And it just further increases my gratitude to be here this time of the year, especially. Anytime I'm in contact with anybody from Chicago, I'm just biting my tongue and, you know, uh, but I'm really, really super grateful. I'm grateful for uh, so many new relationships as well. And Trish and I are both also thankful that uh, really everybody's making it easy for us to get involved in your family affairs, and it's, uh, it's great. To be part of the youth and family events, uh, Friday night was so fantastic. Uh, the energy between the kids and the parents and the workers and everybody, and uh, uh, nobody's got more energy, though, than Tony Newsom. I'm telling you, wow. I'd like to bottle up some of that, you know. Um, but also, you know, what's also interesting is that I've had a chance to be at cafes and overhear producers, screenwriters, actors, directors talking about the projects that they're working on. And, uh, and then they'll be talking about the movies that they were in, and I'm like, oh, 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 I just want to talk to you guys. But, you know, that's just a Midwesterner that's a little bit celebrity starstruck, you know. Uh, but anyway, this series that we're in, this is the third in our series, and it's the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? It's not a statement about my aging process, okay? <laughs> it's not a beauty pageant. It's none of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's not about a movie uh, that featured a mercenary, a bounty hunter, and a bandit. It's really about the first outcome of three major stories. And these stories are so significant that they have affected your life even if you don't know them. Two of these stories, you most certainly don't know the outcome of the, the, the final outcome of both of them just because they're so below the radar. And me and a historian myself, I didn't know about them until very recently. But... Needless to say, though, when you learn of the original stories, these are forgiveness and reconciliation in that category, but tumultuous moments of distress, you will see that all three of them have affected civilization and affected the Christian church. And you, there's a ripple effect to even how it's affected you. So, uh, they are the good, Joseph and his brothers, which is a family dysfunction story, you know what? There's more dysfunction in the book of Genesis than you can find about in the rest of the Bible. Okay? It's just, it's all there. If you ever want to feel good about your family, just read the book of Genesis. Okay? And then the bad, the great church schism of 1054 AD, major, major event. And then, uh, and it was a worship war, largely. So there's a lot of worship wars in churches today. This was one. Um, the ugly, the drowning of disciples in the Reformation. Literally, uh, a horrific event of murdering Christians. And it's a story about the betrayal of friends. So what we're going to do first is look at Joseph and his brothers. And if you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. 
Now, these presentations are not sermons, so to speak. They're more or less just a presentation. A little blend between teaching, preaching, and a TED Talk. Um, we've had our worship today at this particular, um, these four sessions, these four presentations, are to be visitor-friendly. We have one left. Tricia will be joining me once again. I know she makes me look and sound better next week, okay? And uh, that's a very crucial one as well on mediations. And so I just want to let you know that's what the, the, the nature of this format is. But this is a little preachy for me here, Genesis 37. Joseph, or Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, and a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpheth, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Title to it. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to the dream, Dad. We're binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. That's not a good move. Um, Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And then a little bit later, as Joseph went out to look for his brothers, they had moved. And as he was coming near them, still in the distance, says in verse 18, So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And over the course of this conversation, they were technically breaking bad. The phrase is a colloquialism that comes out of the south, uh, southern part of the United States. That means when you have gone from you know what's right and good and you clearly choose to cross a line. The way that the TV series produce, uh, presents it is it's a little bit at a time and then all of a sudden, especially the lead character becomes somebody he would have never had imagined. But crossing the one line at a time, we start to reverse it's the opposite of transformation. It's degeneration. And that's what's happening with these brothers. They're figuring out what to do. We can kill him. No, we can't kill him. But we can uh, sell him. And they're going to put him in a hole. And eventually what they did is they did sell him. And what happened, it says, they created a ruse. Verse 31, they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to the father and, we and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has certainly been torn to pieces. It says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Interesting story here. Uh, there was a whole lot of health, unhealthiness that has factored into the family dynamics you have four wives, 
two regular wives, two concubines, and they are really, uh, the women are pitting their concubines against the two lines, Rachel and Leah, so that they can have more kids or the better kids or the favored kids. It's just really having, you know, a lot of procreation for the wrong reason, okay? And Joseph became the favored son out of this ordeal because it was with his, through his favored wife naturally. And so um, and it was obvious to the brothers that he was the favorite. He got this technicolor dream coat, you know. And uh, so you got two things going on here. You have this coat, which is a sign of favoritism, which is provocative in the family, and his dreams, which have been provocative in the family, not to mention his tattletaling. Okay, Joseph, in my opinion, is complicit in this story. Jacob and the mothers are complicit in this story. Jacob's uh, errors are much smaller. They're more or less adolescent, teenager, normal kind of stupid responses to a dysfunctional family. But it wasn't as if he was completely off track because he did have dreams. And as you know the story, we can't go real far into it today, the dreams resembled reality. His way of handling that reality or those dreams wasn't appropriate, wasn't the best. But what happened to him was so far off the scale of righteousness and justice that he was virtually innocent in comparison to what was done to him. And so he was, went to Egypt where immediately he landed in a good situation, rose up the ranks, got accused of something he didn't do, uh, trying to make him pass at Potiphar's wife, went to prison, immediately rose up the ranks in prison. And because of his gift with dreams, eventually ended up at the at a intimate friendship with the, the Pharaoh. And you know that story. We've seen a lot of movies about it. Don't know what that means. <laughs> okay, good. So anyway, um, by age 30, Joseph's dreams had come true. And uh, he has now with the Pharaoh, and he is like the minister of economics and agriculture all at once. And he has been able to interpret the dream from the Pharaoh about seven years of feast and famine. And he's about the age uh, in his 30s when this starts to occur. Now, it's around age 39 or 40 when the beginning of the famine takes place. And in the second year, Jacob's sons go into Egypt because the word is out, that's where the food is. And then that's when they have the encounter with Joseph, the first encounter. Um, so, and of course, this is providential. There's no way to get around that. And then we're going to see that there, we can see that there are multiple interactions because Joseph sends them back to get his younger brother. They come back. There's a ruse to get Jacob there. And, you know, and Jacob comes and within the same year and what we find is a grand reunion. I wouldn't call it a full reconciliation. It was a reunion with his father, of course. And it was the beginning of a reconciliation. As far as Joseph was concerned... He had for, overlooked what had happened to him. 
23 years earlier, gave it up. It was a done deal. It was over. There's no signs that he's holding anything back. He's embracing, he's hugging, he's squeezing and crying. And even the whole Pharaoh's household is deeply moved by it. He has forgiven. But really, these brothers haven't really forgiven themselves. So 17 years later, when Joseph is 57, his father dies. And after he has died, the brothers are like, uh, our father told you to forgive us and yada, yada, yada. Basically, they were insecure. And let's read Joseph's words, because these are really very important. Am I in the place of God? He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So he said, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I think this was the point where the reconciliation was cemented. The father was gone. There was no risk of retaliation. They were able to hear it in that situation. That was a long time coming. You know, sin has consequences. Betrayal like this, family scandal has consequences. We can't just get through things sometimes just with words. Sometimes there's layers of damage and emotions uh, that have to be sorted out. But this is really a great story. This would be actually, it should be entitled, not good, bad, and ugly, but great, bad, and ugly. Okay? Because not only does this end good, where David is actually saying, or Joseph is actually saying, we are better for having had this. This was in a script. Look at how it's worked out for us. And rarely does a reconciliation go to that, that sweet spot. People can be, have full reconciliation before this, but when you're actually glad that they had the bad thing occur, at least on Joseph's side, he can see, I can see it all over. I see what God had mapped out. And the dream was there. He had all these signs of God being with him and the reassurances along the way. And so it's a fantastic story. So we call this good, transformative reconciliation. It began 23 years after the offense. It took 17 years to really cement with his brothers. That's about 40 years of work. It's a lifetime, really. Okay? Well, that's the shortest one we have today. Okay? Because we got a story coming up next that has some shocking elements. But I, I want to make sure that we let the Word of God story marinate on our hearts in a way. That we try to see God in our conflicts. Not to be like so caught up in being the victim that we miss the opportunity of that pain. Energy comes out of pain. I mean, it can make you wake up early. It can make you plan. It can make you read books that you would have never otherwise read. It can make you interested in learning. It can be a great wake-up call. And if I get overly hurt where it turns into bitterness, you know, like nursing a grudge, you see those stories in the Bible. There's enough stories where that doesn't work out so well. I'll read those, you know. But I'll treat the, the bitterness like a, like a pus in a wound. I got to get it out. Because I've been around long enough at age 54, which I feel still young, okay, 54. But there's a lot of stuff that's happened in those years. I've been a Christian since I was uh, 22. That I've been on all sides of bad, as we say. The, the mediator, 
the perpetrator, the victim, the witness, advocate for a side, done it right, done it wrong. And some of the, the most cherished, valuable things in my life is the conflicts and their resolution. Like if I just went through my Christian life without conflicts, I'd probably be kind of a weak person. You get stronger from these things. I'd just be kind of like a, you know, whatever kind of a Christian. But I'm not a whatever kind of a Christian. I have serious thoughts and convictions and feelings and perspectives because of all those things. And don't you think Joseph did? And Jacob and his brothers. So it was a great story. Now let's look at the next one. The bad. The great church schism of 1054 OD. This was a um, fascinating story. Okay. Throughout the first thousand years of Christianity, the, the churches in the east and the west were pretty much along the map that you see up here. Boundaries changed a little bit. These were the languages that people spoke in their culture. And uh, this was politics. And depending on how the uh, Roman Empire was run, sometimes there was one empire and two halves. Sometimes it was one empire where the emperor is trying to force Latin language and Roman culture on the east. And sometimes they're explicitly divided empires. It's a very complex story. It would be hard to tell it any further than that with, without you know, a lot of time. And so just to make you aware of some of the dynamics that actually play into the story. The Latin and the Greek languages are very different. The Latin language can be very formulaic, prescriptive, and it, an engineer would like that kind of a language. It has a lot more if, then, and else kind of thinking. A computer person would, too. Where the Greek language is so nuanced, where you can have coinciding realities and mysteries, and it's just different, you know, just different. You know, like you could have... 30 variations of the same word in Greek and maybe three or four in Latin. It's just different. It affects the way people think differently. Culture. Uh, what people read. Uh, what interested them. How they viewed the arts was drastically different and actually led to a lot of uh, jokes against the East and the West. Uh, theological emphasis. The West emphasized the cross for salvation. And the East emphasized the incarnation. Worship styles, the liturgies were very different. The music of things that happened during a worship would be very different. The dates of Easter were calculated differently in terms of reference to the Passover moon and the Julian or Gregorian calendar. That became a heated emotional issue at times. Uh, one of them you don't see up here on the screen was, did the... In the uh, West, they believed that the Holy Spirit came out of, directed out of the Father and the Son, and the East said only the Father. Um, that's a long controversy behind it, but it meant a lot to them. You know, meant a lot. They had whole councils to discuss this kind of thing. Uh, icons. The, the Greeks used cartoonish-looking icons to communicate 
through praying and studying the stories of the Bible. Remember, people didn't have uh, Bibles and they weren't very literate. And so this was a way to tell the stories of the Bible. But it became a way of actually worshiping, and it looked to the people in the West like they were worshiping the actual icons. And um, there was a whole controversy about that that ended up in many, a couple of different councils at least. Uh, Mary, her assumption, her incarnation, uh, Lord's Supper, whether it was unleavened bread or leavened bread, whether you should have, uh, whether the wine should be handed out or whether it should only be for a select few. Um, the clergy, the East said, uh, you should be able to be married. The West said, no. And it's not worked out so well for the West, by the way. Um, appearances. The Greeks had long beards. This was offensive to the short, clean-trimmed Latin Roman church. It's troubling to them. They did not like what you see up there. Nor would they have liked this. So, during the era of this conflict we're going to talk about, here's some background. The patriarch of Constantinople in the east would not normally call himself a father. He'd be brother. They didn't use that language for the top guy of their church. But one of the big controversies was the respect of the eastern churches for the pontiff, the vicar of the church, in Rome. And there's so many variations of how this played out, but this was a particular decade where it was not going well. And one time, uh, the patriarch Michael sent a letter, a correspondence to the Pope and referred to him as brother. Now, it could have meant, and it had been meant in a conciliatory way, but it probably wasn't because he started then referring to himself as the great father of the church. So, you know, you got some antagonism or the appearance of it going on. He had real strong feelings about unleavened bread being served at communion. Also, it's important to note note that if there was a Latin-speaking church in the East or a Greek-speaking church in the West, the the West wanted all the churches to to submit to the Latin-speaking liturgy. So if you don't speak Latin tough, they did not understand diversity. And so out of response to that, the Eastern Church did the same. They wouldn't allow Latin-speaking churches in the East. And um, eventually, uh, Michael called the Pope a heretic. And other things, really. Leo, Leo IX sent delegates to straighten out Michael. Now, this, they had, had interactions at many times. Uh, once through the delegates, but a lot of correspondence. And Michael wouldn't back down. So uh, Leo sent an enforcer, enforcer, Cardinal Humbert. Okay, now Cardinal Humbert was a, uh, not a very smart guy. Okay? He was just a hardliner, and that's why, that's why I call him an enforcer. But mysterious events happened on the way as Humbert approached Constantinople. One of those mysterious events was the death of Leo. And he had a a sealed document to deliver to the patriarch Michael. 
And the seal ended up being broken after the Pope had passed. But what was contained in this new document was so off the chart of anything you could imagine a Pope would write that it, it, it has the feeling that it was contaminated by a stupid person. Like if you would read it, you would go, that is really dumb. Did this person finish fourth grade? I mean, uh, really, just a kind of very adolescent. And so July 16th was the day. It was a Sunday. It was a worship meeting. And remember, I say it was at, it was at a worship and the church of Hagia Sophia, which is holy wisdom. I, ironic that it's named this, but that's what it was called. And while the communication bread was being prepared, or commun, uh, uh, communion bread was being prepared, this document was placed on the altar. I just want to read a couple of things. This is from an account from that time. Okay, now this is written by Humbert, okay? Finally, since Michael was avoiding their presence in conversation and persevering in his stupidity, the aforementioned legates entered the Church of Holy Wisdom on July 16th over the opposition of complaining Michael, and as the clergy was preparing for the Mass in their customary way at the third hour of the morning, they placed the charter of excommunication upon the principal altar under the gaze of the people and the clergy who were present. And then, of course, they wiped their feet as they left. This is a sign. And so the emperor was present. And the whole thing seemed fishy to him. Like this was really about Humbert and not about Leo. And what a messy, messy ordeal. This ended really very tragically. It is the symbolic event when the Eastern Church left Roman Catholicism. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm not uh, a fond of the church of this era. I don't have any emotional attachment to it. Um, there is really solid evidence, in my opinion, that there have been authentic, true disciples in every century outside of this big institutional church. And uh, often outside, off the grid, um, sometimes in the mountains, living holy lives, priests would take a group and say, the church has been corrupted, we need to go live right, be disciples, brothers, baptize properly, and so forth. But this institutional church has affected Christendom in a great way. And this event had consequences. For the next hundred years, there were people on both sides trying to piece this thing back together with superglue. Okay? And it wouldn't work. And then for another couple of hundred years, there were people still working on it, monks, belaboring, reaching out. But the emotions were so, so rife from this event that future popes, the one immediately after Leo, embraced Humbert's account of this event. And Humbert was so respected because he was intimidating the people were afraid to counter Humbert's view of this thing. One man acting irresponsibly and very juvenile did so much damage. How much damage, Steve? Well, I'm going to show you. 
This screen is a timeline from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. They want to say their true, true church continued. They didn't do anything wrong. The church that deviated was the Roman Catholic Church of the West. Now, here's where this screen is accurate. Pay close attention because this has changed our world. The Roman Catholic Church is the trajectory where all denominations and schisms of splits have come from. About 40,000 denominations. None of them came from the Eastern split. There's variations of movements in, uh, along the Orthodox trajectory, but they all respect each other and validate each other. Some of them are based whether you live in Russia or whether you live in Turkey or whatever. But something went wrong in the Roman West trajectory, and I think one of the, th the big takeaways from it is it was a controlling church. And when, they, when the Reformation comes along, which we'll be looking at in a little bit, it spawned controlling churches. Controlling churches produces bitterness and resentment. So, the bad, it opened the door. This is why I call it bad. The first outcome, the initial outcome, is bad because it opened the door for all sorts of schisms and divisions in church history. And Christianity has figured out as an art how to break up and divide. Really, they got down to an art. And there's some movements that have even improved upon it, okay? And so, and even in the restoration movement, which I'm proud to be associated with, what happened a couple of hundred years ago with Thomas and Alexander Campbell and others was a unity movement. Their desire was to not let creeds uh, tell them who they couldn't fellowship and to rediscover what the Bible said without some sort of confessional document and by doing that, they discovered that there is no basis for infant baptism, and they started to baptize only adults, and, and open discovery. But ultimately, probably because this movement started in America, where we are so franchise-oriented, so entrepreneurial to a fault, to a fault, that we want to have everything our way, and we did not heed the lessons in the Restoration Movement of what happened back at the schism. I never want to be part of a division. I don't want to be part of a dissension, which is the step beforehand. But I don't want to be part of a division ever. And uh, it just does so much harm. So now today, people mock Christianity largely based on, and there's a lot of mocking room from this story. It's contaminated the witness of the Christian faith. And you say, yeah, but maybe they weren't all true Christians or maybe none of them or whatever. doesn't matter. True Christians have imitated some of their behavior. So the goal is, is to renounce what they did. It's to let peculiarities, opinions, beards, reading styles, language, and nationalism divide us. Does that make sense? And every once in a while somebody's a little bit too Republican or, or too Democrat, and I go, oh, I need to tell you a story. Because in many ways that was a factor too. People were so nationalistic that they put the nation that they're a part of and their culture over the kingdom of God. Okay, so anyway, now we know why that was bad. Here's the rest of the story. Something happened in 1965 that you need to know about. This is a good outcome. This is a good little story, um, if I can find it. Oh, yes, on December the 7th, 1965, 911 years later, there was a summit between the head of the Orthodox Church and Pope Paul the sixth, 
And they reviewed what happened back in 1054 with shared disgust. And they called that they, they said they need to get rid of this obstacle on the road of development of fraternal relationships between the two movements. There is the memory of decisions, actions, and painful incidents in which 200, 1054 resulted in the sentence and excommunication leveled against uh, Patriarch Markle, uh, Michael and two other persons. And of course, it went back and forth because the other side disfellowshipped them as well. But said one pr- cannot pretend that these events were not what they were during this very troubled period in history. Today, however, they have been judged more fairly and serenely. Thus, it is important to recognize the excesses which accompanied them and later led to consequences which, insofar as we can judge, went much further than their authors had intended or foreseen. And uh, they regret the offensive words, the reproaches without foundation, the reprehensible gestures which on both sides have marked or been accompanied by sad events from this period. They likewise regret and remove from memory and from the midst of the church the sentences of excommunication which followed these events, the memory of which has influenced actions up to our present day. They deplore the preceding and later vexing events which, under the influence of various factors, among which lack of understanding and mutual trust, eventually led to the effective rupture of the ecclesiastical communion. And so on and so forth. And you can find this document in many places on the Internet. But they closed that chapter and said both sides were dead wrong and they itemized how they were wrong and said, let us heal ourselves from the memory of the story that should not have happened and begin to reaccept one another. Kind of a good story, huh? I think so because it's still, whether, however you feel about the Orthodox or the Catholics, it's a story that affected what happened 500 years later when there, we spawned hundreds of uh, movements in, in just one decade. I'm, I'm sorry, one century in the 16th century. So they're basically taking a stand against something which left a scar on the Christian faith, which was just fantastic. Okay, next. This story you may feel a more personal about. I know some of you may think, Steve, you're lecturing us. I didn't come. This is Sunday. I, I, I want to go to church. I want to go to class. You know, maybe some of you are there. But this story here should have more of an emotional connection to you, and I'm hoping you'll see it real quickly. It's called The Ugly. The Drowning of Disciples. The Betrayal of Friends, okay? The story takes place in Zurich in the 1520s. The uh, Reformation is typically said to start on October 31st, 1517, when uh, theses written by Martin Luther were nailed on Castle Wittenberg's door. Uh, and it was probably done by one of his disciples, but that is the symbolic begin of the Reformation, not the actual, you know, these things take a little bit more time, but it, the moments. And it was in no time that those developments in Germany had a ripple effect on the nearby countries, Switzerland being one of them who were having their own issues with the Roman church. Very different issues, some similar, some very different. And so this is a reformation that takes place in Switzerland. Erasmus, the great Dutch humanitarian, was the advisor. He was Catholic, by the way, to popes, princes, kings, queens, all sorts of figures, about 200 people which could be named that are in the history books he is the most respected, respected person in this era. He's the first one to actually translate 
the scriptures into workable languages, which by they can be translated into the common language. Without him, Luther would have been at a loss to create a quality translation. And so he's big. He's actually a person in the story up close, though. And then, of course, um, Hugo von something or another. He's, he's the bishop of Greater Zurich, which has some 1,800 parishes, 350 monasteries, 15,000 priests, and 200 in Zurich alone. Okay? And uh, this is important here. The Roman Catholic Church and all the Reformed churches had the same problem. And this is what it is. Priests were getting women pregnant at the same rate that secular people were. And many of them were nuns. And they actually had statistics on this. Statistics on it, guys. A couple decades past this moment, Luther looked at the, the church in Germany and said, we are no different than the Catholic Church on these kinds of issues. Something had failed miserably in the Reformation. And that's important for where this story goes, because there was an answer to how we cannot have this problem. And so, meanwhile, there's a guy named Zwingli, who's a pupil of Erasmus. And he's, he's an expert teacher. I think his Greek is one of his main deals. And he becomes the people's priest of Zurich in a really great building he has, he's serving in. Uh, he becomes a government consultant. There was a real tight bond between church and state here. He was a language scholar, but he also questioned Catholicism, only to a point, though. And what was happening in Switzerland is this wasn't so much about we want to be so intimate with God and we want to be righteous and become followers of Jesus Christ in a way of discipling and all that kind of stuff. This is what we don't want Rome telling us what to do. And we want to control our own liturgy. But the spirituality issue remains as an open debate as to whether they accomplished much from what they were rejecting. Zwingli's important in this story. Here are three of his disciples, starting in 1519. And these three disciples here, Conrad Grebels, Felix Manson, and George Blaurock, were pupils of him, but they also had time on one occasion with Erasmus. And they corresponded with Erasmus which you'll see why is important here in a moment. So Zwingli and his friends began rejecting infant baptism between 1519 and 1522. Clearly, they remembered the conversations. They were sharing a bond. This was a true friendship for a few years. But meanwhile, Zwingli is growing in prominence in his connection with the hierarchy, the politics in Zurich. And he became increasingly aloof. And so... See that church building there? Right across the street, that other building was one of the places of government where Zwingli would do business. He worked for the church, and he worked for the government. And it's really under, important to understand this, is that a sticky point, which was going to be infant baptism, infant baptism was tied in with government. It was connected to how you take the census, how you know who your citizens are, way to be able to get names and rosters of your community. And this group of 
Zwingli's friends and said, we shouldn't be baptizing babies. This was going to pose a problem for Zwingli, not from a biblical standpoint, but from a political standpoint. But Zwingli shows you the danger of when church and state intersect. Okay, so that they had this uh, legal proceedings. They're called disputations, where Grebel opposed Zwingli's slowness and reform. He said, I remember what you used to say to us. What's, what's the give now? And so the three men refused to accept the outcome of these disputations. There were multiple ones. One of Zwingli's fellow reformers, this is now a fourth guy, Hubmeyer, joined the new group. And so Zwingli is affected emotionally because his friends don't share his position, won't respect his leadership in the city council to decide what the church ought to do and not do. He was their teacher in school, but they view him as somebody who betrayed their cause. So he is connected to all four men. You kind of wonder what's going to happen to these guys, right? What's happening to the friendships? The confrontations. Vangley started calling them Anabaptists, which means the rebaptizer. They did not accept that name. They didn't think an infant baptism counted as the first baptism. So they did not like the name. Sometimes they called themselves uh, brethren, other times disciples. They were definitely called the radicals, which is actually a complimentary term because it just means to follow the route, to go back to the origins, and they were. And they were to stop having meetings and to have their children be baptized or they had to leave town. Well, they didn't. So a week later after this ruling, uh, Felix Mans baptized Conrad Rebels. They had come to the conclusion for sure now that adult baptism is a command of the Lord, and who baptized Blaurock, Zwingli's closer friend, who baptized others, and the movement focused on Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Great Commission. Their message is so close and similar to what we have cherished as a church. Now, they were discovering things over time in layers. The, the early version, they, they were a bit confused. But the essence of being a disciple, they mastered, I think, in terms of the essence willing to take a stand. They were ejected uh, from Zurich by Zwingli, and guess what? They were imprisoned, and also uh, they decided Anabaptism would be punishable by death if anything else happened. So what did happen? Mance was sentenced to die on January the 5th, 1527. Okay? Zurich prosecutors decided punishment for the second baptism was third baptism. That's how they worded it. Drowning. Uh, hands were bound to his knees. He was thrown into the icy river. And into the hands, I, Lord, I commit my spirit, commend my spirit. This is his last words as recorded by witnesses. Now, uh, there's a lot of paintings that have been used to recapture that moment. But um, we now know the spot, by the way. As they would tell their story as a movement, it would be similar to how we tell our story. They would say, in 1525, about a dozen would-be radicals met in the living room of Felix Mance, you know. <laughs> and it would be true. That's what happened. And even would-be would be true because they weren't so clear at that stage about baptism as they were later. They first baptized people, through, which is not even literally baptism, by sprinkling. And then later, they learned to figure out the immersion thing. Menno Simmons, a famous uh, 
where we get Mennonites from, branch of this group, as the one who helped them recover the idea of full immersion. But these, these people are so commendable. And this is really important because there is a chapter in this story we're going to find out about today if you haven't heard about it already. That same day of man's martyrdom, George Blaurock was beaten and banished from Zurich. He went to Austrian Alps where many other believers were baptized. Eventually, he was burned at the stake. Um, Hubmeyer, after he was baptized at Mansholm, he baptized 300 in 1526. He went to Osberg. He was martyred in 1528 where they burned him at the stake with sulfur and gunpowder rubbed into his beard. These are Christians doing this, right? Um, his wife, Elizabeth, was drowned three days later. Doesn't pay to be a friend of Zwingli. I want to tell you something else about Zwingli. Not only did he go against what he discovered in the Greek text of the New Testament about what he believed about things, he was the first person who coined the phrase that things like baptism and the Eucharist are outward signs of inward grace. He was reactive to what the Catholics had done is gave endued more power in those emblems and rituals than were probably intended by Jesus and then minimized them um, and evangelicals and other Protestants to this day have a poisoned theology that is directly connected to the influence of Zwingli, which John Calvin then embraced as well on the other side of Switzerland. And so he really is a boogeyman, okay? There's something wrong with this man. So, the ugly, the drowning of disciples, which means that politics prevailed over love. That's the first outcome of that story. But guess what? That's not the only outcome. That, the first outcome was that for 400 years, it wasn't really good to be an Anabaptist. Protestants slandered you. They misrepresented even what they believed. You know, the Anabaptists were universally pacifists, down to every one of them. Because... But at one time, one Anabaptist leader talked to a warmonger in Germany of another movement who actually caused wars in Germany. And that conversation was seen by witnesses, not overheard, but just seen. And it was reported that there was an association between these movements, and there was never any. The Anabaptists rejected all forms of violence, even military service. And so I've read books many times that have branded the Anabaptists, like the, the Waco group of David Koresh, you would read, and, and they would mix things from one movement and put it on another inappropriately. That's what the Protestants have been doing for hundreds of years, even up to recently. It was unsafe to be an Anabaptist until the mid-1800s, and many of them end up in Canada or in mountain areas of Europe or in the United States. The Mennonites... Um, the Amish, the Hutterites, and then there are other movements that have, have a connection to them as well. So, something happened in 2004 that I think you'd be interested in. This has a connection to us, guys. Listen up. 477 years later, something happened. I did not find out about this, neither did Trisha, until a day that we... Somebody's saying that this is important, Okay. The picture on the screen is of a meeting that takes place between the descendants 
of Luther theologically, the Reformed Church, and the officials of Zurich and representatives from the descendants of the Anabaptists. And this wasn't the first meeting, but this was the most significant. And so at this spot, the evangelist over there tells us this story, which really almost everybody in the audience had never heard. But the leaders of the Reformed Church, Zwingli's Descendants Church, and the city officials, they proclaim an apology. The persecuted do not forget their history. The persecutors, by contrast, would prefer to do so. We representatives of the Reformed State Church of the Canton of Zurich acknowledge that our church has largely suppressed the story of the persecution of the Anabaptists. We confess that the persecution was, according to our present conviction, a betrayal of the gospel and that of our Reformed fathers were in error on this issue. And it goes on and on to affirm them. We honor the radical approach of the Anabaptist movement to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world as a free community of committed believers putting into practice the message of the Sermon on the Mount. They, they went further in other documents and other testimonies saying there was nothing really that they did wrong. And it's really hard to find anything that they did wrong. And so you might wonder how the descendants of the Anabaptists uh, replied to this moment. Uh, a Swiss Mennonite uh, representative spoke. I'd like to express my gratitude to the authorities of the city of Zurich as well as those of the Reformed Church and the Canton of Zurich. For some of us, this plaque, which you see on the screen there, represents a way of perpetrating the memory of our past and we hope the dialogue others will see and the strong sign of an important event that tomorrow will be over, but that we will refer to in order to testify to our reconciliation. And there were so many more words in this, but this is what's much more interesting. You know, the uh, Amish, they just don't get on boats and go on over to meetings in Switzerland just because somebody invited them. <laughs> and one official of the Amish church said, uh, we acknowledge the motive of such a conference. However, anyone well acquainted with the old order Amish would be aware that world travel is not in accordance with our culture. It would take a drastic occurrence to induce delegates of the more conservative Amish to travel to Switzerland. How do we feel about the Reformed Church? How do we feel about the Reformed Church? This is how we feel about all Protestant and Christian churches. We hold a considerable value to any church that teaches its followers to fear God and live in peace with their fellow men. The earth is a better place to live because of the various Christian churches and their principles. We believe the descendants of the Reformed churches are not accountable for any actions their forefathers took against the Anabaptists. Far be it from us to request reconciliation. History teaches us that a church is made stronger by persecution. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. We wonder if there would be any Amish, Mennonite, or Hutterite churches today if there had not been any persecution. Christ forbids us to hold ill feelings toward the descendants of any oppressors, whether they are Reformed, Catholic, Jew, or heathen. We hold this to be the general feeling of the Amish of the USA. Please accept this humble writing in good faith. We hold no ill feelings and plead forbearance for any grievance we may have caused. God bless you and yours. This is so significant. This event 
in, in this plaque. There in the middle of the river lay a mat from a fishing platform were drowned Felix Mance and five other Anabaptists during the Reformation of 1527 to 1532. Hans Landis, the last Anabaptist, was executed in Zurich during 1614. And that's a memory of the event. But what's interesting about this is that if this story were known more broadly, we would be able to leverage it for new talks with those who are our present adversaries. It's no surprise that the Churches of Christ and the ICOC are not really friendly with Campus Crusade and Navigators and InterVarsity and all that. Although we may respect their books and we actually read their literature and enjoy some of the things that they do, but there is tension between us and those who are descendants of the teaching of the sinner's prayer and infant baptism. Pray Jesus into your heart. This story is significant because there needs to be a new movement. There needs to be new events in our lifetime, new challenges to the status quo, but also a heart that's building bridges to make these things happen. Already this event has helped us. Right after Christian Herbst, the minister of Zurich Church, found out about this story. By the way, our church was not treated very friendly in Zurich, our international church there. And he said, we want to rent one of your buildings for our services. And they said, we don't rent to your group. And so he read to him out of this book, this very book, the story. And they made it so that we, our church now, can use the church buildings. Because he said, we share the same principles that people are upset with us about are the same things that the Anabaptists were persecuted for. So if you're going to be nice to them, you've got to be nice to us. And this is out in front of the church that Zwingli preached in, a meeting that took place with disciples and some guests. But it's, it's really interesting. I know this feels like a lecture and it feels like you came to a class today. But I want to implore upon you, there are some things it's just necessary to learn. And those of you on the campus, it's, I think it's really important for you guys more than any of us to know where certain beliefs came from, certain historical events happened. And I'll teach some of them out on a Sunday morning or a Saturday while we're here. There's important things that we need to know in order to be able to be relatable, to give a good explanation for where we're coming from so we can build bridges and seek opportunities for advancing the gospel. So, the end of the matter is better than its beginning, according to Solomon. I love this. That means anything that happened bad in the past, we can make it better. The possibility's there. Patience is better than pride. Here's the quote that I think I want to land on for today. Settle matters quickly. You know, if, if Joseph and his brothers had a more conflict-competent, less dysfunctional father, that tragedy wouldn't have happened. It did. God saw it in his plan. It worked out something great because of it. But that was 23 years of separation. That was painful. The next story we saw was one that was 911 years before it got resolved. Look at all the carnage. It got resolved. Praise God. And we're able to use this information for a better future in Christianity. But look how much was done. Do you have a conflict today that you have not settled quickly, that as time has gone on has gotten messy, 
messy and kind of got ligaments and unfinished pieces that you can make right. Insofar, it is up to you that you exert a careless word towards somebody, something in social media, a family infraction, something towards your boss, something that's created weirdness between you and somebody else. You know, if you apologize, somebody just might say you're pretty. Right? That's what we learned last Sunday. Okay. Let's be a people that's really, really good at dealing with things right up front. I am so determined to help our fellowship just in my small part be conflict competent that I'm willing to have conflict to do it. Okay? I think Christians being peacemakers should be brought back up to the core value of who we are. We're good at this stuff. Okay? But you can't get good easy. There's a lot of pain and tears and sorrow of getting good. So let's settle matters quickly. And the last screen for you to see is, starting this morning, because of Robert Cooper's help, we have a link, both a button on the top of our website and a, or the link you can go to that has all the documents related to this project here that's going on, all the correspondence, and there's stuff that most of you probably haven't even seen or read that's right there. And on Friday of this week, we're putting up the ad for the next minister we intend to hire that will go on Disciples Today, but it'll be on our link up here this week. And I wanted to give you a formal, uh, we are now dismissed. Thank you.